I'm Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines. And we hope a few interesting insights come out. In this episode, I speak with Akshemal Maktemova. Akshemal recounts her story growing up in the Soviet Socialist Republic of Turkmenistan, her early career as a young medical doctor practicing right as the USSR collapsed and the health system failed. She speaks about her journey into the international health sector, first uh, the UNFPA and then the WHO, that led her to postings in Laos, DPR Korea, India, Yemen, Syria and others. She shares lessons learned from her experience in health diplomacy in the field. I'm especially fascinated by how Akshemal's values shaped her life trajectory and by her reflections post-COVID on the values she feels we need today. Hi, good morning, Akshemal. Really lovely to, to see you today. Great to see you and uh, looking forward to our conversation. So you you're calling from uh, from Turkey today, and I'm remotely here in uh, here, here in uh, Singapore. And that's a little bit uh, also uh, quite typical of of both of our lifestyles as as uh, international travelers and international uh, workers. Global trotters. Uh, <laughs> Global trotters, indeed, which we've both uh, kept up even through COVID, uh, which has brought um, its own challenges, which I'm sure we'll touch on in this conversation. Um, I was really, really drawn to uh, to your story and to your 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 profile. Um, somebody working for the WHO, um, which, which of course uh, is very interesting, um, just because of it. We are we are in, in uh, on the, but also um, you, you're one of the very very few um, people that I know from uh, from Turkmenistan, um, the, the second actually, um, and uh, the friend that I have that I know is much uh, he's he's, uh, he's in his thirties uh, um, and and. Uh, uh, so his memories of the um, the Turkmenbashi and that period of the the traditional Turkmenistan that I grew up uh, learning about, so he, he was less familiar with. And I'd love maybe to for us to start that that conversation and ask you if it, if it's not too uh, uh, uncomfortable to 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 take us back to uh, to what it was like growing up in, in Turkmenistan and. I'm, I'm sure not so many of our um, listeners are familiar with with the country. I mean, I, I grew up with the stories that we had in in, in Europe about the Turkmenbashi, about quite a close society. And if you'll forgive me for saying that, um, it, it was often the country was often compared with with um, with North Korea. Um, so I'd I'd love to hear your perspective of uh, how it was like growing up and some of your maybe your good memories, and, and if there are more difficult ones, what, what, what they were. Right. Uh, thank you for this question. I was born in Turkmenistan um, in a district which was nearing Uzbekistan, um, one of 15 Soviet republics. And immediately when you ask this question, the color which um, is associated with that time is gray. <laughs> and standard uniforms, houses, and structures um, later, I was uh, having uh, some kind of a déjà vu when I visited the DPR Korea also, where the same structure and uh, grey colour uh, would come flashing back. Um, but 
don't be mistaken, those were happy times. Yeah. Standard, um, and those standards were, I have been part of um, establishments uh, for children and youth, like Aktibriata, Pioneers, Komzomol, and all was standardized, um, systematic. And some of the memories which I vividly remember and I'm proud of that we have experienced that were uh, access to services, basic services, near 100% literacy rate, um, access to healthcare. I remember when anyone in the family felt sick, we could simply dial zero and two and an ambulance would come within less than 10 minutes. Um, public health services like immunization, childbirth, um, dispensarization of chronic disease patients, all have been given and uh, uh, all I might have taken for granted or we must have, uh, which I realized much later when the health financing um, and the organization of health system has changed and I have witnessed in other countries um, and it was based on ability to pay. If mm. you are able to pay, you get services mm. or you get services for which you are able to pay. So again, looking back, those were happy times. It's, you know, it's, it's a given. Every childhood uh, I wish is happy and I have happy memories. Um, and it the values which were we were brought up with were values of fairness and collectivism and the value of self-interest were um, in a way put um, after the mm -hmm. interest of collective mm -hmm. so i would have never thought of um, you know putting myself above all but it was others put above me. So it yeah. was more value of selflessness. And um, I think I had this acute sense of, uh, you know, whenever I witness anything which was seen unfair for me, I had that duty of stepping up. Mm. At the same time, maybe as a child, um, there was a respect for adults. And um, while as a child, I dared to speak up when I witnessed any unfairness. And I remember a line um, where I was standing in a line for ration. I don't remember what ration it was, but it was food ration, meat or bread, I don't remember. But um, as maybe seven years old or eight years old, standing in the line of adults, I saw that one fragile Turkmen uh, older woman was kind of pushed out of that line, uh, people, you know, quickly um, to, 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 to uh, first in line. I was, my heart started beating so fast. I was scared, um, but I needed to interfere because mm. adults seemed uh, to be not paying attention to this unfairness. So, and uh, my Russian language was very, very weak. So I had to repeat several times in my mind, you know, constructed sentence where I had to plead to the adult, wow. adults. Yeah, so I, I, I did that and I was becoming red and my heart was beating and <laughs> I did my make my statement and uh, the poor woman was 
put back Re-degraded. in line. Yeah. Right. Um, but I also remember that when, you know, my my parents have given me to Russian um, school, you know, where medium of education or teaching instruction was Russian, it has been extremely difficult for me um, uh, to start with zero language. But in two years, I managed to uh, get up um, and get exceptional uh, awards for, especially in Russian literature and uh, language. And I remember this school uh, gathering with parents and um, students where I was, as the top student, I was expecting that now my name would be called and I would get an award um, to travel and attend summer camp, Artec, on a Black Sea, situated on a Black Sea. Um, I was on my tiptoe, <laughs> Philip. <laughs> uh, but then I heard a different name of uh, my uh, schoolmate, um, whose parent was in a, uh, you know, parent committee, uh, school parent committee. And I remember looking around at adults' faces, but they were kind of not saying anything. Everyone was content. (laughs) So no one questioned that. Uh, And somehow, you know, because it was about me, I also put it in a very uh, deep drawer in my memory. (laughs) But only becoming an adult, I understand that it was also a culture of uh, silence, being silent among adults. Um, So while it was accepted to speak up about unfairness for others, for collective, I was able to do that. But when it concerned me, I never spoke. I was more reliant on what adults would say. Right. (laughs) You attribute that to adults or even maybe the fact that like the, the, the needs of an individual themselves were not but then really... it was acute fair unfairness right yeah, it was yeah. uh, um, you as a top student and the other ones um, were yeah. standing in line again yeah. standing in line uh, allegory with the earlier uh, line uh, it i guess my parents were also somehow humble and mm. were not prioritizing it Maybe because I was the eldest among five sisters, um, mm. I had a lot of also obligations and responsibilities growing up on my shoulders. Yeah. From so it was really uh, unfairness pointed to you, and there you you couldn't speak up. Unlike, unlike I couldn't, that, uh, and uh, my yeah. parents didn't. So it yeah. was also <laughs> probably upbringing among my parents. So the uh, yeah. the childhood I had was probably different from what our children uh, have. Um, It was a mixture of Soviet uh, values, collectivism, and probably a mixture of the fact that I was the eldest among five sisters in the society which was um, probably valuing sons more than Mm, daughters. As well, right. Um, So I remember, again, talking about responsibilities I had on my shoulders. 
I remember that I managed to cook independently the Turkmen dish pulao. It's made of rice and meat. Right, like the plof from the... Yes, from plof, the, yeah. exactly, right. exactly, plof uh, for over a dozen of guests at the age of so, 10. So, so, so you have to, you, because I think many of our guests will not know that, but like we're not talking about just cooking a dish. It's not like asking a Frenchman to do omelette. Like plof in Turkmen and Central Asian culture. Elaborate is, dish. And, and it is very, it's central to socializing as well. It's So say, say a bit more, please, because that, it's so special what you're saying. Yeah, it's one of the most elaborate dishes uh, uh, in Turkmenistan. It's like biryani, maybe in India or Pakistan. So it's something where you put for big gatherings. It's not yeah. everyday meal. So I cooked it at the age of 10. Um, as my mom was late from work and a man helping our father to make a small construction, you know, to enlarge the place where we live, we were exhausted and hungry. So, um, yeah, I, I uh, remember that and I remember being responsible for my siblings. Uh, mm. um, but what I have to mention that despite this patrilineal society, our father loved us and uh, secretly, I guess, was happy being surrounded by caring, loud, messy, <laughs> and never boring. Yeah. He called us all women battalion. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, because I, I remember, because I visited Uzbekistan and, and uh, the region, and I remember like men didn't do very much, but plof, that's one thing they did. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I guess for you as a 10-year-old to to girl to do that uh, that must have been actually quite special to 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 demonstrate you could do that right it was i guess also the expectation that you step in when yeah. needed so when your mother is not there there are responsibilities for girls cooking yeah. sewing tailoring taking care of uh, children siblings uh, household chores yeah. i think all was there it, it was somehow expected <laughs> um, so the most um, difficult memory talking of remembering my father was um, actually losing him hmm. uh, I was uh, 28 the youngest among sisters uh, Shirin uh, she was at that time 14 hmm. and uh, perhaps uh, it was most uh, most fragile among all of us uh, for this tragic loss our father didn't die. So imagine for five girls um, to have Gabal in Arabic. It's a mountain um, mm. in, in, in Turkmen, mountain, who was, you know, the father, the man in our family, the only one. He didn't die of natural death. He was mm. only 50. He was killed during those murky times surrounding the collapse of Soviet Union. Mm and the big transitions happening in our society with widening gaps between poor and richer uh, while before it was all more of a homogeneous society in fact uh, during that time and after that time many men did not survive i don't know women were more resilient uh, i guess accepting what those changes which were happening while it required 
tenacity for 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 all of us to go mm -hmm. through those uh, difficult times and transitions. I remember in 1991, late 1991, when my father-in-law, the military doctor, was watching the coup d'etat on TV, Yeltsin and uh, Gorbachev, nowhere to be seen. He was, uh, you know, saying reassuring comments. Um, Don't worry, children. All will be back in two weeks. Yeah. Um, we lost him also a few mm. years after losing my father due to illness. And I believe that illness progressed as he could not fathom the mm. changes happening uh, that were neither discussed nor coming due to societal movement as it was presented in Western media. Yeah. You, yeah. you would be surprised. It, it, it was not kind of common movement for us. We, we, yeah. we did not believe what was happening. And the loss of our two fathers was the end of the era or the life as I knew it. Mm. Um, and it propelled me to another reality, to another yeah. stage. And, and I think this, this point is, is worth p pausing on, actually, I think, because the, 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 the childhood you described with the um, collective society of, of um, a, a very homogeneous society as well, where, where there were public, public services, there was access to help. There's a, a lot of social cohesion and social integration at all levels. And, and you talked about the Komsomol and the, and the pioneers, which, which really created a, a sense of togetherness and, and, and purpose in society, I, I, I believe. Uh, but was still quite close from the outside world. And then when the whole thing fell apart, there was, I mean, I've had a couple of friends um, who lived through that and all of them have described it as the most traumatic event that ever happened to them because it, it's almost as if they were living in a, like a, a certain world of two dimensions. And then one day they discover, actually, there's a third dimension. And, and whether it's about uh, the arrival of somebody like, things are not certain anymore uh, like this idea that there's a market that, that you can choose things um, there's different values that that, that um, all of that certainty disappears so I'd, I'd love to hear a bit more about that actually how you how you lived it it has been the loss of uh, the state as we knew it the loss yeah. of a system as we knew it or um, the organization of the society and also values. I guess um, I lived so far three eras. One was the era of USSR. Um, another was the era for me, you know, of uh, col after collapse of bipolar world. Um, and this after COVID times is now we are starting a new era. Mm. Um, which I don't know how to call it, post-COVID era or, you know, with this political crisis, uh, what was happening, what is happening in Ukraine and all. It's a new era, totally, with, which brings its own values. And we have to still realize yeah. what kind of values it will bring. So the collapse of Soviet Union was collapse of the government, which was a duty bearer, which provided yeah. us with those services, education, healthcare, and um, all, 
uh, work, employment, um, when all that was gone, it's mm. almost when you lose a parent. Mm. And then we lost our parents. We lost our fathers. Then you grow up. So growing up was not at the age of 20. Growing up, in fact, was when I lost my father at the age of 28, when then I became a, a woman's head of women's uh, when I yeah. was the one yeah. who had to take care now and lead and protect my younger siblings, girls mm, in yeah. patrilineal society. And it, then you had to kind of uh, contemplate new values because those earlier values of collectivism were gone. Yeah. I guess values needed to be always in every society values need to be supported by certain economic structures mm, or yeah. organizational structures in the society and um, which probably will also have to be adjusted now in the post-covid mm. era yeah i find it fascinating that you you draw a parallel between the uh, the end of the world as you knew it um at the end of the um, Soviet Union and the need for new values. And you draw a parallel with, with the post-COVID era. I'm, I'm wondering if, if we can go back to that a little later in our conversation, actually. Uh, I think the experience that you've gathered in your in your space could be interesting to, to then uh, shed light on, on why, why you think um, we're seeing such a watershed moment uh, now as well, actually. I'm, I'm, wonder, I'm wondering if it's, yeah, yeah. But, but, um, it's uh, there were a number of factors when I looked, I was born as a romantic, and um, <laughs> my brain or my soul <laughs> was ready to accept, um, you know, different, um, um how I would say, uh, inspirations. And the first one who planted the seed that I have to be a doctor was my grandfather. Hmm. Now I know that he planted the seed, but before he would take my hands into his hands when I was as, as young as I remember myself, he was director of school. He, he knew what he was doing apparently. He took my hands into his and he would say, oh, these are not the hands of Akjamal. These hmm. are the hands of a healer. Hmm. Um, and apparently, according to my mom, he was the one who would proclaim, you know, to adults in the family, this child will be traveling the world. So, hmm. And the second influencer or the one who was supporting this idea was, I guess, my mom, uh, who as a librarian would bring different books for me. And one of the books I remember uh, from school age uh, was the canon of medicine. Canon uh, from Arabic is kanun, mm. uh, translated as rule, rules of medicine by Avicenna, the poet, the philosopher, the physician of, uh, uh, you know, golden Islamic age. He lived in the 11th century. So I remember reading all that. I remember being fascinated by 
you know, science he was creating. And I remember many other books my mom would bring about medicine, about chemistry, about physics. Um, uh, growing up, this aspiration to become a medical doctor remained throughout. Um, my father's library, a room with three walls full of books from a ceiling uh, down the floor, uh, was giving also that air um, where we respected science, physics, math, algebra. Um, it was giving that environment, you know, to mend and to explore. Um, and when at the age of 18, I applied after high school to State Medical Institute in Turkmenistan, I got in. My father was a bit sad and disappointed because he wanted me to be someone who will continue his legacy. Right. He was dean at the Trade Institute. Um, and I remember from age 10, 14, I was helping him to draft different dissertation, dissertations right. and write articles. So I was, uh, you know, working shoulder to shoulder with him right. through his economic books, right. uh, through his trade books. So he was disappointed. And it was my mom who actually stood by me saying, you have to give her liberty of choosing oh, well, her profession. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the third influencer was when I was 15, my future mother-in-law, uh, who is obstetrician gynecologist, who came then with my future husband, who was my <laughs> classmate. Right. Beautiful red hair. Um, everyone actually thought that she was a girlfriend of <laughs> then, um, uh, 15 years old uh, uh, classmate. Um, and who offensively, almost offensively, would say, this is my mother. <laughs> uh, she was OBGYN, uh, obstetric gynecologist, uh, whom I admired instantly. And then when I became a student in State Medical Institute, she was our professor. So while I entered a medical institute to become a generalist, you know, a physician, Yeah. I instantly decided to follow her footstep and uh, specialize in obstetric and gynecology and be right. responsible for mother and child. Right. Um, so when USSR collapsed, uh, health system collapsed, um, and uh, after graduation, I uh, witnessed uh, basically the collapsing system or I was uh, in, a, in, a, in a different environment uh, which was totally different from your dreams. So suddenly I was the one who would hand over empty buckets uh, uh, to, to fathers-to-be asking them to bring water for their pregnant wives to secure water for delivery or a cesarean section. Wow. Right. Or I found myself in a surgical ward doing a cesarean section without electrical power using mechanical ventilation um, to the women uh, who were intubated under candlelight. And um, Philip, don't, uh, uh, don't think that those were ca normal candles. Eh? I caution you, 
not to imagine those proper candles. Those were made of, by us, by ourselves, made of uh, cotton wool. Um, wool we used in hospital, uh, soaked in an oil, uh, cotton wow. oil, uh, and we lit it. Uh, here I was alongside other doctors using um, a good portion of my salary and sometimes my husband's salary to buy medical supplies uh, or medicines because, uh, you know, to compensate uh, for the lack of a central supply. And wow. we are the ones who are responsible for two lives, uh, life of mother and life of a newborn. Yeah. And in our medical profession, we cannot make a magic. We cannot heal with empty hands. Yeah. We needed supplies. <laughs> yeah. So alone at individual level, it was impossible to address those supply chain interventions, which were wow. symptoms of a bigger collapse of health system. Wow. And that needed strategic approach and policy choices. So, of course... Uh, for me, I continued working until one day my mother-in-law has handed over a ticket. And it was not simple ticket. It was an invitation to a United Nations Population Fund workshop, right. uh, which was a ticket to my next stage in life, to international work. Right. So, uh, so it sounds like... Yeah. I mean, I imagine you as a young, so you had just graduated, you were a young doctor, like, like, and, and 1991 or so, that's when the whole thing fell apart. So you, you find yourself, instead of, as you dream, as you dreamt to be a, a doctor in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a government facility, do, doing what you'd seen um, your, your, your uh, mother-in-law uh, do, uh, you you end up almost facing like what what have to face or even worse. Um, that but that that must have been, I mean, like like the pressure collapse on you. Of, <laughs> collapse collapse yeah. of in collapse of what you imagine, what you dream. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and you have to find yourself in those situations and circumstances, and you still have to save lives. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it was not sustainable at all. I remember spending my salary, which was approximately equivalent of twenty dollars uh, yeah. as a salary of a doctor, um, and my husband, who um, left, um, uh, he was Soviet Army military officer, uh, who left the army because there was a collapse in the army as well, right? Collapse of the supplies and all. Um, and to work in a U.S. embassy as a security guard. Um, his father probably never forgave him that because yeah. it, 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 it was extremely difficult. And my husband would say, I need to my family. So it was extremely wow. difficult. And um, do you do you remember how you felt in those days? What was going through your mind? Or was there maybe no time to think even because it was kind of you just had to get on with it? Or okay, let me let me give you one example. We were classmates with my husband uh, last two years of high school, and when he decided to leave the army, you know, again I'm romantic. 
<laughs> he was very good looking in this <laughs> military <laughs> uniform. <laughs> it was almost sad times, you know, when, you know, Admiral, those movies, right? <laughs> so um, I remember when he decided that he was leaving the army, I was against it. I was against it in our family union, but when he still decided, of course, I, 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 I could not um, forbid him. He was, after all, uh, my husband, and I was obedient uh, Turkmen woman. Um, uh, but I was the one, I was already pregnant with my second child, I was the one who used this... Uh, Again, I'm using it metaphorically. White flag to go to his, uh, to my mother uh, uh, and father-in-law, to convince them that they have to forgive their only son for what he had done. Right. Because it was not a betrayal for yeah. the state. It was not a betrayal for you know for community. Yeah. It was what he chose to do for his son. Yeah. and to provide for his family. So here we are again going for our values, yeah. collectivism vis-a-vis -vis the responsibility as a father for his family. Mm, yeah. So while my mother and father-in-law were in a way communists yeah. for communal, and they still believed and hanged that Soviet Union will return, my 28 or 29 years old no, maybe he was even younger. No, he was younger. Right. He was 24. <laughs> right. Uh, 24 years old uh, uh, husband. He believed that he needed to do something for what he was responsible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For his family. So I remember those days. And I remember the time when he invited me to what he called U.S. Embassy Compound. So compound mm. was a new word for me. So when I went there, uh, and remember again that we were classmates, right? We had uh, this competitive <laughs> classroom experience before. So he was very good in languages, and he spoke English. Uh, although we studied English in school, he was much better than me. Um, and when his supervisor came, and he asked me, he greeted me, Hey, Abjamal, how are you? I felt I was like a dog who mm. understands, who is very smart and who understands everything, but he cannot speak. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so I couldn't return <laughs> that conversation. I couldn't engage in that conversation and I felt miserable, Philip. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. of course, uh, he lost any interest in me. I remember Andy, he lost any interest in me and he left. But um, returning back home, I was very angry at myself, obviously, at my husband. And uh, from then on, for several months, he paid for my English classes. Oh, yeah. It cost only $2 per, uh, per hour, but I guess it was investment <laughs> in me and in my yeah. future. Yeah. And then this this uh, UNFP invitation uh, at the workshop kind of fell out of the sky almost, and and seemed to to come as a almost a message from another world that uh, that uh, there is a different path. How did that happen? 
Um, it was Javad Ahmed who was, uh, Dr. Javad Ahmed, who was a Pakistani expert, uh, UNFP regional advisor who was facilitating that workshop. And uh, he was uh, uh, very much convinced um, that I was uh, among rare specialists who was obstetrician gynecologist and who already spoke English by mm. the, then. Yeah. And he introduced me to a UN resident coordinator and um, saying that here she is, obstetrician gynecologist, she speaks English, she's a great, she's going to be a great asset for the United Nations Population Fund. And the UN resident coordinator, uh, Omer Artur, a Turkish um, uh, expert, another one who was, uh, um, you know, introduced, I was introduced to, he looked at me and again I was silent. He said, uh, smiling, well, she doesn't seem to be speaking Turkmen, Russian or English for that matter. <laughs> um, later I have applied to um, program assistant job and I got it and I was everything from zero with very little vocabulary of English. Mm. I remember trembling in front of uh, Omer's tooth when um, on the red carpet he was uh, quite angry at my performance, <laughs> um, explaining something to me and using the word circumstances. And yeah. I remember scribbling that word circumstances in my notebook <laughs> and running up <laughs> and, uh, to open Collins Dictionary <laughs> <laughs> and understand what did it meant and what he was trying to explain to me. So um, those were times when, you know, I was really absorbing new culture, new environment of international organization. I admire WHO consultants working for the UNFPA. Um, we had a project where WHO consultants would come, and those times they were, um, I vividly remember asking myself questions, where those people come from? Hmm. And how do they know rates? How they calculate uh, those rates? How do they make their recommendations? Um, and I did some research and I wanted to know more about public health because it was totally different science of organization mm. of health system. I found London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, but the tuition was beyond yeah, yeah. my reach. <laughs> So you, you you were drawn you, you were drawn to that um, to that international world um, on on the back of that UNFP workshop and then on the back of your contact actually with these international workers the f the first interaction sounded like they were extremely difficult from a communication standpoint and uh, it sounds like it's a theme that seems to come through quite a bit in your life about um, not finding your voice always. Uh, or, 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 or either due to language reasons or, or for for other kind of other reasons, actually, mm -hmm. uh, which seems to generate some some level of of, of frustration. But I'd, I'd love to hear about so that that kind of uh, determined but painful uh, transition into the international space. So, like, what would you say was your kind of breakthrough, or what what what, what was your path to? Uh, to actually feel uh, you were in a, in, a, in a place where you were a bit more kind of at peace with yourself, a bit more confident and in control of, of, of your destiny? Um, I think when I uh, 
became a staff member of UNFPA, I instantly felt it was my community, my family as an organization. And then um, I received um, notification from one of my friends who was also my coach, mentor, um, who um, has been in touch throughout life. I had uh, very good people uh, who have coached and mentored and have been friends in my life. So he was the one who drew attention to one advertisement, vacancy announcement um, of junior professional officer funded by Beijing um, in Laos. Um, and I decided to try myself um, to go through the competition, competitive recruitment, and when actually they promised that they would revert back in two weeks, but they reverted back in two days saying, you are the first choice candidate. Wow. I think this was something which I was not expecting. My <laughs> first uh, recruitment experience and um, I, I received uh, an offer for international assignment. My husband said, here you are. Uh, write them back saying that you can't because we were not expecting that I would pass. Uh, but then I said, Murat, let's try. Let's uh, go back to our parents and let's have uh, their wisdom. And it was my husband's uh, father, again, yeah. my father-in-law, uh, who was a colonel of Soviet army or uh, the Turkmen army, uh, who said, you have to go. Uh, right. These type of opportunities are given once in a lifetime. Right. And he was addressing my husband. He said, uh, you have to quit and you have to follow your wife. You are a family and it doesn't matter whether this opportunity is given to you or to your wife. Yeah. And uh, here we went to Laos wow. and uh, that's how our, our international life started. From Laos, again, the same person, um, who was my mentor throughout my life, Ronnie Lindstrom, um, who sent another announcement, back in the announcement to work in DPR Korea. And again, I went through recruitment um, process and I was first uh, choice candidate there so as well. DPRK. DPRK. Wow. And, and so the, the, so you, you moved to Laos. Was that... That must have been one of your first international trips, I imagine. Was it the first one? or? or... Uh, so I was local in um, Ashgabat, Turkmenistan, right. working for UNFPA. And the first international experience was Belgium-funded. Belgium, right. Belgium. And I was probably first and only Turkmen uh, citizen, <laughs> yeah. a young professional who was funded by Belgium. Um, uh, there I worked uh, with um, other colleagues, a Japanese um, uh, colleague who was funded by her own government, Japan, and Italian by Italian government. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. So, mm -hmm. and and maybe take take us to to Laos and and uh, DPRK. Uh, so DPRK, for listeners who don't know, this is the official name of uh, what um, is most commonly known as, as yeah, as North Korea. But uh, yes. um, I'd, I'd love to hear a bit about your 
your experience in the field there um what was your find it what were your tasks what, what did you learn what was difficult give us a bit of a flavor of of uh, of that you see i have served in 10 uh, duty stations well yeah i guess it is a life on the constant move uh, constantly packing and packing, meeting new people, making new friends. Um, so as a second uh, international assignment, the PRK was the last where my family was as in one place, united. Um, and we were very happy, four yeah. of us. I have two children, son and daughter. Uh, they were the only children, except one more small uh, boy, uh, in the community of international expatriates working for the various agencies in a compound which was surrounded by, uh, you know, um, soldiers um, assigned uh, to watch, I guess, expatriate community there. Um, it was very different experience than uh, in Laos um, for our children, especially for me as a mother. That was the last resort where I had my children next to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, again, we were happy, but it was not easy for our children because they were to move from international school to Russian school because the right. only international school or so-called international school we had in Pyongyang was run by uh, Korean teachers. Right. Although it was um, uh, English medium of instruction, but they came back, uh, you know, singing songs uh, uh, about uh, leaders, Mm, It's not an easy environment or the the values, which was oftentimes probably conflicting. Um, I was there, we we were there um, about two years. We were again very happy. We were privileged to have known um, teams, people, individuals, suffering of people, what UN was doing. Um, very grateful uh, for those experiences, but again, it was not without controversy. Yeah. But we learned a lot, and uh, as I say, it was the last for me as a woman and as a wife, the last experience where I had my family together. Yeah. Are you able to share a little bit about um, the uh, scope of your task in DPRK? Was it was it about helping in hospitals with uh, with uh, women and children, or was it about training? Or what were you? Yes, I was a medical officer um, responsible for family health. Yeah, where I was responsible for bringing uh, medicines. It was mainly humanitarian aid. Um, uh, building systems for disaster preparedness and response. Um, uh, looking uh, for uh, maternal health and child health. Um, I was together with my um, mentors and um, 
both uh, WHO representative, um, Ada Thornson, um, negotiating um, resources for improving maternal and child health uh, with the government of ROK, which stands for Republic of Korea, which is South Korea, yeah. uh, for multi-million projects um, to build hospitals, re renovate hospitals, uh, bring medicines and supplies, um, ensure quality of care, ensure protocols and treatment guidelines, train doctors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was a scope of work. And this was an environment where, I mean, at the time there were still pretty significant sanctions. So I imagine the, the level of resources available in country uh, must have been quite, quite low. Uh, so it must have been quite, quite daunting to, to be able to find ways of, of having an impact in an environment that um, uh, was quite precarious, I would say, in terms of uh, access to uh, medicine, technology, uh, infrastructure, and, and just, just right. yeah. As I look back, Philip, I see similarities. I have been discussing the other day with a friend of mine who said, Abjamal, you had such a resource of resilience throughout your life. Yeah. But I think that resilience, first of all, is fueled by the energy, probably inborn energy I had, from, you know, as I was born, um, uh, it was probably inherited. But I see that resilience in every woman and man I have met in countries under mm. humanitarian, in humanitarian situation or yeah. under oppression or in difficult calamities. So when I look back to the PRK, this resource resilience of people is outstanding but then yeah. i can compare that with resilience in yemen i can compare that with resilience of people in syria when people are put under enormous difficulty the desire to leave the desire to persevere to create um is something which uh, yeah, generate yeah. that resilience. Yeah. Makes Mention us stronger. Those have been facing and still are facing extraordinary levels of uh, challenge and, and uh, conflict or, or lack of, lack of access to resources. What would you say? Like, were, did you feel that the international community and in your position as well that you you were able to re really make a difference, or, or what was that main difference? And, and I mean, I, I realize a lot of it is relief. So structurally, it, it, it doesn't, uh, I mean, apart from training, but, but it, it, it's to a certain extent um, doesn't fix things fundamentally. Yes, um, I feel, um, Philip, as a obstetrician gynecologist, I was able to save a mother and a child at one time. As someone uh, who has served international organizations, I was able to address, together with the mandates of my organization, root causes, yeah. the systems, the organization, um, the structure, not structures probably, but policies and strategies which needed to be addressed. Again, 
it all lies in the framework of economy, politics or political economy, which was difficult probably to influence. But still, I think the most important um, products or results I feel or uh, differences I made, I feel those differences um, in people I have met. So probably to give you an example, in the PR um I convinced because I was, you know, a fresh graduate, uh, master's uh, of science, um, graduate from London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and I graduated online using distance learning program, which was very new at that time. And in the PRK, I convinced the different parties to support four fellow national professional officers, uh, three men and one woman, uh, for their admission to London School of uh, Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which was sponsored by WHO. And WHO, while it cannot do that normally, uh, you know, for master's degrees, but it was done on exceptional basis. Because, wow. of course, it was out of reach for those professionals to pay for their studies. So I spoke with British ambassador, I spoke with my WHO representative, and we have convinced um, that it was uh, to be granted exceptionally. So leaving behind the knowledge, because ZPRK is also, uh, in a way, secluded um, yeah. country, isolated, it was important to penetrate minds and when you leave, you have made those, making those bridges to knowledge, to education, to Western way of looking at it, or science, contemporary yeah. science. It was extremely important. And once you have putting the seed, as my grandfather did, yeah. putting the seed in those brains and non-cultural uh, bridges, building those competencies, is the most valuable contribution one can make. And once yeah, you leave yeah. those people, you leave those people behind. People are the greatest asset of any organization. And while our humanitarian work is probably covering percentage of it, maybe uh, certain changes, deeper changes at the deeper societal level might not have happened or if we withdraw it will uh, then fade away i think leaving behind people are the greatest contribution yeah, and yeah. asset for any society so this is uh, what probably one of the differences uh, uh, examples i would like to make Another example, what we have done during pandemic times, introducing vaccines, supporting pandemic response, establishing laboratories, strengthening host building preparedness for uh, a new uh, you know, public health emergencies is something which yeah. we have done almost all uh, countries, or at least where WHO was present. And as the world is changing, Philip, one of the things where, especially it's very close to our education, what our alma mater, what we share, it's about the diplomacy. And I would like to also mention about health diplomacy and health for peace initiative, um, which as WHO representative at that time, uh, 
when this initiative was conceptualized in the Sultanate of Oman, I was part of the committee, national committee. And later, this um, initiative was supported by the government of Switzerland in 2018. And it now, earlier in May this year, this initiative became a global initiative um, adopted by uh, World Health Assembly. And um, I look forward to continue integrating this work into um, work at the country level, uh, Syria, uh, inter-country level and inter-regional level as we see uh, what is unfolding uh, in Ukraine. Right. And maybe it's a good point in, in the conversation to, to ask you to reflect a bit on um, your, your experience of that international health model um, and, and what you've seen work and not work because it's working for an international organization relies on on the, the member states uh, is always done in cl working closely with with host governments um and, and the, the theme are, are, are um, states that um were facing a lot of challenge uh either because of being in the middle of a, of a conflict or 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 um a lot of them are limited capacity to, to deliver things. So, but you still have to work with them to, to, to have an impact. So I'd, I'd love to hear a bit, maybe looking back on a few examples that come to mind, like how, like what, what, what have you seen work in that, in that, in that model? And what have you seen, where have you seen some, some of the limits of that, um, that kind of international cooperation sitting on top of, uh, states that that, uh, um, that, that I feel may not that, be fully functional, um, if you like. Pandemic has shown that none of the states and uh, WHO has one hundred ninety four member states as a member of WHO. Others which the globe ready for pandemic and. COVID is showing us that health issues are the central for global development and security. Yeah. None of that we are talking about developed state, US or Japan for that matter, or states in humanitarian emergencies, Syria, Yemen, Somalia. The world is not ready. So it means there is no, because X don't know and viruses or they don't know borders, they have to consider it as a global problem to tackle. And there is for unity and for global health governance. And hmm. while WHO is 74 years old, uh, created after World War II, there is a need for global governance. Um, WHO as a multinational organization is serving to some extent and the attention of member states was drawn to the need for this platform and for such organization. I think still the funding, the level of resources, the level of that unity mm -hmm. 
uh, around global governance is not yet there. Unfortunately, yeah. during pandemic, um, um, there are many other aspects where uh, epidemiological concepts or in, ep epidemiological knowledge necessarily main uh, uh, <laughs> reason in decisions. For example, closure of borders or shutting down um, uh, some yeah. air traffic or uh, for that matter where, you know, with all those decisions, inequities have actually widened. For example, when we speak about vaccines, so economical and um, uh, others uh, reasoning of uh, potential social impact of certain decisions or political uh, um, decisions have to be made. Um, yeah, and it was, it was not only yeah. in humanitarian settings, for example, in some settings where governments would be very, very fragile, but those decisions were or uh, with very well-established governments. So I guess mm -hmm. um, it's again a decision, international decision of those member states um, um, around uh, health issues, which are global. Yeah, it was a bit my interpretation in some some level as a, as a as a non medical staff being caught up in the middle of COVID while doing multiple international moves. Like it's like if if you're a state facing COVID and uh, well, you don't really know what is COVID or how to deal with it, and the population is asking for action and there's not much you can do. What do you do? You do what you can as a state, which is close the borders. And then if you could close the borders to foreigners, uh, that sends a good message as well. Uh, so that's if you can do that, you do that too. Um, and, and so that, that, that I found quite um, quite disturbing uh, to such populistic, populist and tribal moves, uh, even in quite developed countries, actually. I'm not sure. Um, you remember, I don't know if you have made the simulation exercise at the Fletcher. Yes, uh, yes. Right, uh, in emergencies, um, in emergencies, there are myriads of decision making, and uh, those decisions are not always reasoned, and it's not only one reason for those decisions, unfortunately. And with the uh, in, in, in global, uh, in, in the globe where pandemic threatens the entire humanity, uh, you have uh, pluralism of decision making. Uh, tools, reasons, uh, and unfortunately, somehow, while we have to go for convergence uh, of ideas and uh, reasoning, um, this divergence <laughs> is also happening. And uh, now, in post-COVID era, we, as a global community, have to think about those uh, public health issues or global health issues, its impact, and that it is also central to um, mm. our development. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's a point at the conversation where we could go back to to you as a as a person actually, uh, and and um, ask you, reflecting back on these uh, decades in 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 in, uh, in public health. So, where are you now? Like, what's on your mind? And um, how do you look back on that career? What like? favorite success or favorite failure and and um and and what are you looking ahead to, to now 
You know, uh, I like the way how you put it. <laughs> Can't failures be favorite? <laughs> uh, rather awkward composition, but uh, yes, uh, jokes apart, failures um, are the greatest lessons in life and have been the most propelling factors in my life. Yeah, and and if if I may, because I, I don't want to let that thought go away, I I, I recall the moment in our conversation where you mentioned twice uh, the last time you were still with your family before you moved uh onwards and and were separated from them and an expression of pain uh, when you mentioned that so i i, I just want to play that back in your answer i'd love to hear that as well yeah ah, uh, do you associate it with a failure <laughs> well it's a trade-off it's a cost it's a it's a cost yeah and uh, for many, many years, for decades, I was arguing with my husband when he would call it a sacrifice. I would tell him that it's a choice. So yeah. I was always putting it as an active um, choice while he was putting and still as a sacrifice. But recently when I was talking about it with one of my friends, she really put it together, said, can it be both choice and sacrifice? Choice to sacrifice. Yeah. Maybe uh, because, again, you go for collective, again, you have to put certain things first, yourself a second. But as a mother, as a wife, as daughter, as sister, I think when, as a woman, also you have those expectations or different roles in life. You are not Jamal, you know, the staff or civil servant. You are Jamal mother, you are Jamal daughter, you are Jamal wife, sister, older sister. So I guess I was trying to multitask um, and uh, attend all those uh, roles. But it's not about the ability to multitask. It's psychological contract I make with my loved ones yeah. who also decide to be by your side with your decisions or decisions made together, choices made together, agreed upon, which are irreversible yeah. and irreversibly altering their own lives decided to leave his work. By then, he was working for the American non-governmental organization, Counterpart Consortium. Uh, he left following me to Laos. Um, he was, as they call it, um, uh, his friends were joking, American house husband. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, for seven months before he found himself and started working for, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, non-governmental organizations yeah. or for private organizations again. So his career, which was having very clear path when he started, was um, uh, also different uh, then because everything in a way was given for me to follow my path. Yeah. So as a woman, I feel blessed to having met this wonderful man again, talking about Muslim society, uh, who 
for whom I guess, uh, and I believe because he says so, I was known as son of goddess. Mm, and yeah. he's still be, beside me and he's my wings. He's the one who always encourages me and uh, says, uh, again, maybe it's sacrifice, he says, but I guess he's the one always encouraging me in my past. Mm. But again, as a mother, yes, I was not with my children and even with my husband in cumulatively for 14 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 14 years. And we have been as a family always looking forward. And we had this interesting exercise in our lives where we meet in different countries and then four of us decide what is next, whether, you know, to make this choice or to make that choice, where to be, we're a cosmopolitan family. Um, and it, we call it strategic review and strategic planning. <laughs> <laughs> we look back and we look forward. <laughs> we are global totals. So I guess, you know, I always want to be guil- to feel guilty that probably I could have been a better mother. I could have probably been there for my children, but I've tried. Probably I could not be with them. And during COVID times, two and a half years, I have not been with my mother. I have not been with my children. I have not been with my husband or sisters. I was in the forefront of humanitarian emergency. For two and a half years, I haven't seen them. So um, those are choices. Uh, And again, choices for collective good, where you put yourself uh, behind. You know, some people call me soldier. Some people call (laughs) me a woman of steel. Um, I don't know whether it is a metaphor and maybe not the best metaphor, in fact, it's a strange way to describe a romantic. <laughs> exactly. I, I am a romantic. I am passionate. And one, once I remember one of the, the ministers of health uh, uh, told me, Dr. Abjimal, you are too passionate. <laughs> and my response was, well, passion is like love. You cannot love halfway. <laughs> it's either or, right? You have to be passionate. So I guess I was always passionate about my work about supporting others um, and in a previous conversation you mentioned that that passion may may have exceeded maybe sometimes what your organization was prepared to do yes that's a painful subject for me because again um, going back to covid times in humanitarian settings in syria i feel that um, as a leader again talking about failures right is it a failure? Again, it's a choice to be made. Um, organization, and then again, organization is made of member states, whether member states are prepared to resource the organization to be prepared. We were not prepared at all levels, at different states as a globe, as a humanity for pandemic. And of course, organization was not prepared or resourced. So, but again, the job needs to be done. So imagine going back as obstetrician gynecologist. If you have a woman to be saved and a child to be saved, 
you will go to until the end to yeah. save the lives. So here we had 12 million of vulnerable population to save, um, to respond to pandemic. And as organization was getting resources and growing, there were the same difficulties and resource gaps in other settings, in other countries as well within the organization. And it was an opportunity for national professional officers, seasoned uh, professionals in my organization in Syria, to grow into and start their international life. So basically there were positions where they could grow and apply and they were prepared um, and seasoned for that. So as a leader, I had a choice uh, either to be a driving response with very seasoned professionals and not letting them go anywhere or let them grow go into international assignments and meanwhile to work on succession planning bring new young professionals and train them and still be uh, answering uh, the responding for covid pandemic but i guess here again i was so keen to do everything right to give the opportunity for national professionals to grow into international professionals in other countries, Sudan, Libya, Yemen, Afghanistan, uh, and bring from the workforce which was existing in Syria. And the workforce existing in Syria, you have to remember about attrition, great yeah. attrition um, as people leave the country. So you had a capacity which was much below than you can probably expect. And you have to teach and train. While some of those newcomers were able to quickly start swimming, um, and there are organizational resources um, to do online training, and there are resources and tools, uh, some of the uh, newcomers needed hands-on training, maybe mm -hmm. more a deeper explanation, uh, you know, uh, going coaching, daily coaching. While we didn't have time for that kind of training, we didn't have time to pay attention for those newcomers. And here we ended up when more seasoned and more experienced staff had to shoulder several functions. So yeah. it was probably easier to do certain functions by ourselves rather than uh, redistributing it to newcomers or explaining to them or coaching them or training them because we were in the middle of pandemic, in the middle of emergency response. So, Philip, it's difficult to describe it. It's a lesson learned because then we were quickly burning out. It was like yeah. <laughs> soldier down, another soldier down, right? I realized it and I was pushing myself so hard 24-7 and probably pushing my team also so hard to do what we needed to do. So it's yeah. almost having a woman on a surgical table <laughs> and you do everything to, to save the life. And here we had lives of 12 million. Yeah. 
So it's it's a it's a dilemma and it's a difficult to say. And uh, I haven't still drawn probably clear lessons from yeah. this uh, experience. And I think it's a lesson not only at my level or at my team's level, because I think it's all coming from the willingness of do good uh, yeah. to bring a new succession, to train them, to uh, respond, to give career opportunities for another batch of seasoned professionals. But I think it's a lesson for all of us hmm. where... And I have read a lot of articles and, um, uh, you know, research. We have this burnout across the globe. We have attrition uh, and movement from health sector. And to is, is this a little bit what you're referring to as your feeling that this is the beginning of a new era that is a bit exactly undefined? That's what you meant at the start of our conversation, right? Exactly, because we are at a new era where probably we have to look into, again, our values because with this, while we were working in the forefront of humanitarian emergency, uh, saving lives, uh, doing what we believe to be done, we have sacrificed a lot of our probably own well-being. Um, we burned out, uh, some of us. Um, we uh, didn't see... We sacrificed because we haven't seen our own loved ones. I remember some of our international staff had their children having COVID in another country while he not only could not travel, but he was not even willing to travel, uh, but to serve uh, uh, our uh, target population, uh, to stand there um, and serve the mandate of uh, our organization. Mm -hmm. So a lot of sacrifices have been done, but then now probably we are at that exhaustion where we need to recover, to understand what had happened, to look into resourcing our organization and to look into our mandate, to understand what are the limits, you know? Yeah. What are the human limits? What are the limits of your organization? What should be the responsibility at individual level, at team level, at organization level. In fact, I was reflecting on that with one of uh, ambassadors, with one of the diplomats, and uh, she, again, it's a woman, she told how much she pushed herself and her team at the same time asking the, uh, you know, for more resources, for more human resources um, to help her to meet the deadlines, uh, which uh, she didn't receive, but um, they managed to do the job, but at yeah. the expense that some of her staff uh, uh, was burned out. Actually, it's, it's been a really wonderful conversation and, and we've touched on such a range of, of topics from your, from your upbringing to your journey into, into health, to some of your lessons learned in so many theaters and some of your reflections about this strange new era that you feel that we're going into. Um, and and I, I feel there's so much more that we could discuss. And I, I would actually really love to do a, a second episode with you where we could maybe dive into some of these topics in more, in more depth. But, but I think maybe 
maybe what we could do in, in the, the next few minutes that we have is just ask you a couple of closing questions if, if you're if you're all right which is uh, something that we've started doing with with other guests um to give a bit of color to uh, uh some of your kind of uh personal ways of, of of resourcing yourself and all of that so is that okay with you yes sure so i mean you you're clearly somebody who's super well read but i'd love to ask you something that you read recently whether it's a book or an article um that, that had a strong impact on you uh daring greatly by uh, Dr. Rene Brown. It's about uh, choosing to be vulnerable. Oh. These are the themes of, uh, you know, the, the times of great courage. We all face times of anxiety, fear, shame, uncertainties. For women especially, it is hard to soften and ease into joy. And that's why probably sometimes I was called a woman of steel, right? We yeah. put an armor of perfectionism to feel protected and from being seen as vulnerable. So that resonated with me deeply. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The more popular you become, the more haters you have looking for everything that resembles dirt. It was uh, the words of Michelle Obama, where, you know, as leaders, we are doing sometimes tough choices what is best for common good and then between doing that what is best and being popular and loved um how do you explain some of the decisions yeah. and uh, and should you be still seen tough or firm uh, or you can be seen as soft and vulnerable yeah that, being that's a, on that's the a... spotlight <laughs> It's a great. Yeah. Uh, it's a great quote for somebody who's at the same time a, 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 a romantic and and a, and a woman of steel. <laughs> like uh, being on the spotlight for women may be more challenging, uh, yeah. Philip. Uh, too many glass ceilings remaining unbroken, and we know that. For example, with the recent um, events of uh, Finnish Prime Minister, yeah. uh, then in U.S. Senate, uh, only thirty-three percent are women. Um, 25% of academic leadership. So it's it's extremely, uh, yeah. still, there are so many things. Mm -hmm. And it's a topic we haven't explored too much today, actually, your, your gender in your profession, and even the fact that your gender, and also coming from a predominantly Muslim country as well, what additional uh, layer does that does that add something for maybe a second a second a second episode maybe a second question i could ask is a, a habit or a hack that has improved your life um yoga um i learned again through the book um yoga by indra devi um, and cold shower when i was uh, not living in tropical countries where i could get the ice cold uh, bucket of water <laughs> that uh, actually really ignites uh, immunity and uh, right. i would recommend it uh, to everyone when they want to be stronger and have wow. a good protective immunity right uh, yeah, it's, it's something that um, Andrew Huberman, the Huberman Lab podcast, actually talks about. So uh, there's, there's a lot of science behind that too. <laughs> and maybe yeah. la last quick question would be a, a question that uh, I should ask the next podcast participant that you think I should uh, I should ask. Um, in one of the Harvard reviews recently, I read the name of the article was uh, which 
caught my eye. Uh, global workforce is tired. Right. Um, uh, the question is, what is your take on it or the next uh, podcast? Um, okay. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I would argue that we lost our values and need to adapt to the new realities. The world is not the same as we knew it. Um, tectonic changes have happened rather quickly, merely in two years. The pandemic triggered global changes, inflation, labor shortages, geopolitical instability, rising energy prices. Name it. Is long. <laughs> um, yeah, we need to understand the new realities and adapt to them. Again, talking about the third era I am living in, uh, the challenges for the leadership um, is to protect and secure most important values in the organization by supporting its staff uh, to somewhat uh, lessen the potential impact of those risks which we are facing in everyday lives. Right. And I believe. I am living in a better world than my mother um, uh, has lived. Yeah. And I believe that my daughter will be living in a better world than I live. Yeah. yeah. Great. Thank you very much, Akshiman. I've, I've really enjoyed our, our very broad conversation. It's been fantastic having you uh, today. And th thanks, thanks a lot for taking the, the time. It's been really, really, uh, really rich and valuable. I've, I've loved it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from to be the first to know when new episodes come out.